So I seem to have some tendency to teach retreats where there are fires. Not quite sure. I think they're going to stop asking me to teach, actually. But I taught a retreat at Mount Madonna some years ago uh, when there was a big fire that was in danger of um, coming to Mount Madonna. And then last year our group in Santa Cruz was sitting over at Land of Medicine Buddha when the big summit fire occurred and we spent part of the retreat being under evacuation alert. So, so far this one's better. You know, a little smoke in the air. And For those of you who are wondering, it's about 30% contained, but it's not burning very fast. So people are beginning to... They're still alert, but they're relaxing a little. And... I was reflecting on the fires and remembering one of my favorite Jataka tales, which has to do with a forest fire. And the Jataka tales, if you remember, are the stories uh, and myths of the many, many lives of the Buddha before he got to be the Buddha. And they're often very practical and um, sometimes they're considered to be for children, but I find them quite useful to consider in terms of Dharma and everyday life. And in this particular story, there was a forest fire, and it was burning quite a lot, and the animals in the forest, of course, were really afraid and running about and trying to get away. And there was a little parrot who was flying around in the air, and he could see that the forest was burning, and he could see the distress of the animals, and he was really upset, and he was trying to think about what could he do, what could he do, and he was trying to ask people, you know, what can we do? Can we help? We have to do something. And everybody kept saying, no, it's way too big. There's nothing you can do. And finally he thought, well, I'm just going to do what I can. So he flew over to the local river and he dove in and he got water all over his wings and he flew over the forest and he flapped his wings really hard and some water fell down on the forest and the drops sizzled and it didn't do much and he drove back, flew back to the river and dove in again and flew back and flapped his little wings. And the eagle went by and said, what are you doing? You know, this is so stupid. How could you possibly think this could help? And the parrot said, I don't care. I just have to do what I can do. And he kept diving into the river and flapping his little wings. And unbeknownst to him, in the heaven realms above the forest, the gods were watching And one of the gods was so touched, according to the story, that he began to weep. And in his weeping, the rain came and put out the forest fire. So there you have it, this little parrot doing what he could in order to serve his friends, the animals. The parrot, of course, is the Buddha in another lifetime. So you might think, you know, here you are, and doesn't seem to be too much evidence of the fire, but on the other hand, uh, your mind today might have felt a little bit like a forest fire, I imagine, um, with a lot going on and a lot um, being burning and being difficult. And often at retreat, when we're in these early days, it just doesn't seem like there's very much that we can do about it. You know, the mind is so difficult. I often think of these first days, I don't think of them as the fire, actually, I think of them as the swamp, you know, where it's really swampy and 
yucky and and it doesn't seem to you know I haven't yet after all these years of sitting I don't know about my friends here but I have not yet found the first few days of retreat when you just settle in and cruise and it's great right from day one um, so I think it's just part of the geography and um, and really like this little parrot you know all you can do is what you can do and it might not seem like very much like you know, the instruction says, go back to the breath. And you think, ah, you know, how many times have I gone back to the How many times did you go back to the breath today? You know, we could probably have a competition for how many. And the numbers might be really high, I suspect, on a day. I know it was for me, anyway, settling in. It's the first day of retreat for us, too, you know. And we talked last night about taking refuge. John led us through the refuges. And... Um, and here we are in this really wonderful place of refuge away from the fire and away from the actual fire but certainly also away from the fires and storms of your life. So in thinking then about refuge and thinking about the forces of nature and how we learn from them, I was also remembering another incident um, oh, a year or so ago, and I was visiting on the big island where I am blessed to spend a fair amount of time um, with a friend who lives over near the town of Pulaka. And she said, you know, you have to come see this amazing thing. And so she took us um, down to the beach at sunset, and or just before sunset. And we hiked out on the rocks, and we came to this really large area of tide pools. And she said, now watch. And so we began to watch, and pretty soon there was a big sea turtle coming into the tide pool. And then there was a second, and a third, and a fourth, and a tenth, and a twelfth, and a fifteenth, and big sea, you know, big sea turtles coming in one after another. And I said, what's going on? Why? What? Huh? And she said, well, the understanding is is that this is a safe place. They come in, they can feed on the seaweed, and they're protected at night from the sharks because that's apparently a time when the sharks tend to hunt around for tasty sea turtles. So I was quite interested in these wonderful, they're, big, they're great beings, these sea turtles finding this place of refuge night after night after night. So, you know, maybe look around at your fellow sea turtles. Here we all are, and we've all come into this place of refuge um, for this next ten days. And so we took refuge last night. We took refuge in the Buddha and in the Dharma and in the Sangha. And some of you maybe took refuge last night for the first time. It's your first retreat. You've never done this before. And some of you know that ceremony, that ritual that we do, and have that sense of doing it again, and you've done it many, many times. And you've done it here at Vajrapani, and you've done it at Spirit Rock, and and maybe at many other centers that are like these, that are such refuges. And I often think... You know, we live in a world that is, is pretty chaotic and um, there's so much conflict and there's so many groups of people who are 
angry with other groups of people. And there's wars and there's all of the mess around the economic crisis and the difficulties with the environment. And it's pretty clear that we need places of refuge, you know. It's, we're pretty desperate for places to rest. And, um, and of course, not only is there all the social conflict and difficulty, but the, our culture itself is pretty insane and pretty hurried. And we are all of us bent on fitting more into every moment um, and have all these little devices that do more and more and more for us, for us so we can do things faster and faster and faster and faster. You don't have to go to the library anymore. I, I found out a wonderful thing. You don't have to go to your astronomy book anymore to find out what the constellation is that you're looking at. Are you ready for this? You just have to hit the right app button on your iPhone and point it at the sky and it will tell you what constellation you're looking at. How good is that? You know, really fast. I think there might be some benefit to going to the library, but I'd have to tell you I'm lusting after one of those iPhones. So we come here. And here we are sitting and hoping to find some of this refuge. You may not you may wonder at this point whether you've found it or not. And to hear the teachings of the Dharma and to hear the truths of the Dharma and to be in a community of people who are practicing and maybe to rest some. We're hoping that John is resting. And to heal. And that's true, I think, for for many of us. And we come over and over and over. Some of you have sat, some of you have sat so many retreats, you don't even put down how many retreats you've sat on your interview sheets anymore, you know. And I remember that when I was in my early practice, I know I went over and over again, but you know, I'm not sure I really knew why I went over and over. I just did, because somehow there was something that seemed to work. And those of you who know Sylvia Borstein know that she likes to say, you know, that third noble truth that says there's an end to suffering, she has, you know, 3.5. And the 3.5 noble truth says, if there's not a complete end, at least there's less. And I think that's a lot what brings us back. We begin to, we hear something it changes a little bit how we are in the world or in ourselves. There's a little less suffering, and so we come back to do it again. And in all likelihood, you suspected, if you didn't know for sure, that at least it would be safe here. It's a bit like the sea turtles coming in to rest, that you would be coming to a place of safety and a place where you might suffer a little bit less. So here's a Zen story that I rather like. It's one of these kind of strange Zen stories that you're not quite sure what it means, but that's okay, just take it in and we'll play with it a little bit. So in this story, the, one of the monks, much like maybe some of you today, was out sweeping the grounds of the monastery. And another monk came along and looked at him and said, too busy. And the first monk said to the second monk, he said, you should know there's one who is not busy. 
And the second monk was very skeptical. And he said, if that's true, then there's a second moon. And the first monk held up his broom and he said, which moon is this? So you can think about that. But, you know, when I heard this story, I was quite taken with it. I, I love these, these kind of the koans, the, these Zen <coughs> things where you can't quite, you know, they make your mind kind of twitch a little because it's hard to get what they're about. And I thought, how can, what, how, one who is not busy, even just that phrase, isn't that a wonderful phrase? One who is not busy. I mean, what an amazing refuge. You don't even need to understand the story any more than that. What an amazing refuge that would be not to be busy, you know. And how can that busy broom that he's just been sweeping with be the moon of not busy? That doesn't make any sense at all. And about a year or so ago, somebody who had newly moved to Santa Cruz and was sitting with my community there said, I'm not busy. And I intend to stay that way. She was letting me know that she didn't want to volunteer for a whole lot in the community. And I was quite taken with this. How could somebody be that clear that they weren't going to be busy and that they intended to stay that way? I was really amazed. And I had the same sense of amazement as the Zen story when I ran into it. It was a day long, actually, that Norman Fisher was teaching at Spirit Rock. And I thought, how can this be? I don't understand it. How, how would it be if I could hold myself not to be busy, not to be so caught? Everybody I know is busy. Everyone is busy. Everyone has full appointment books or PDAs of one sort or another. Each day in my email, Google sends me my calendar and tells me what it is I have to do. Even my grandkids have schedules. You know, they have play dates and they have soccer day and softball day and baseball day. And, and it's not so often anymore that children, remember those afternoons, maybe, I don't know, maybe you didn't have them, I did, where you got to play in the woods behind your house and go off on your bicycle and not do much of anything and you just had to be back by supper. And kids don't get to do that so much anymore. We're all... You know, we're all human doings instead of human beings. And, and what we know is that busyness might be a kind of a defense sometimes. It protects us from some things. But it's not a refuge. It's not a place of rest or, or healing. So here, we've come to kind of a screeching halt. And um, even with the double messages about if you have to talk on your cell phone, go way up towards Castle Rock someplace. You know, really, I'm hoping that none of you have had to do that. And that your email is just sitting there collecting with your auto message going out and your, your phones are collecting messages and your snail mail doesn't come here and your dog and your cat don't need to be fed. And you're just stopped. You're sitting and walking and sitting and walking. And that's all. And somehow we each knew, you know, 
that this was what Angelus Arian sometimes calls the sweet territory of silence, you know. And, you know, she asked, when in your life did you stop really knowing? And when in your life did you stop singing, she says, and when did you stop dancing? And when did you stop knowing this sweet territory of silence? So we're in this territory of silence here this week. And we're spending hours, some of you have probably already counted, and if you haven't, you will, sitting with your eyes closed. You know, sitting, being with the breath. And then you walk very slowly, back and forth, for even some more hours. You know, clearly not going anywhere. Now there's a wonderful story from the early years at Barry of the, one of these delivery men coming, you know, like the ups truck. And he drives up, and Barry has this big sort of driveway in the front, and all the students were out there walking very slowly. And he looked around, and he tucked his package under his arm and marched into the office, and the the office person, you know, took it and said, thank you. And then he looked at it, and he said, I'm so sorry. I'm so very sorry for all those poor people. So, you know, it doesn't look like refuge, really. It just looks kind of strange. Just being here, as Gil talked about last night. And, you know, the instructions, and we haven't actually had too many, and there won't even be too many, they really are all about giving us the skill just to rest here, in this moment, doing nothing, just being here and not anything else. So you're here because you've realized that there's some value to that and you've come like the sea turtle seeking this safe harbor and probably by now at the end of the first day you're noticing maybe again that it takes enormous skill to stop, doesn't it? It's not so easy. It's simple, as Heather said this morning. It's simple, but it's not easy. There's one student um, who sits with my community in Santa Cruz who some years ago decided that what she was going to do towards the end of her day, when she was finished with work, was she would come home and she would take 15 minutes and do nothing. Nothing. And she said it was the most remarkably difficult practice. She wasn't even going to meditate. She was just going to do nothing. So you could play with that a little bit. What would it be to do nothing? And we know that in the natural world, the natural world has times of stopping. You know, once upon a time, nights were really dark. You know? We don't do that so much in our country. It's a shame. It's not so good for us, actually. And in those dark nights, we could see the stars. And, you know, when we're in big cities these days, many of you know this, if you look up at the sky at night, you're lucky if you can see a half a dozen stars. Not too long ago, again, when I was on the Big Island, one night I went out from the house and looked up at the sky and said to my husband, Oh, look at all the stars. And I said, isn't it too bad? There's all those clouds up there. And he said, Mary, 
those aren't clouds. And I said, I looked at him and I realized what he was saying. I said, no. And he said, yes. And he went and got the binoculars and I looked at the clouds. And of course the clouds weren't clouds, they were stars. Billions, millions of stars that we never see in our everyday lives. So we need the darkness in order to see those stars. Or we, there are traditions in the parts of the world where winters are cold and wet and people pull in and really use that time for introspection and turning inward. Or in various tribal customs, um, it's often, for example, menstruating women have to spend time apart. And it's not considered to be something awful. It's a time really to go in and be separate and reflect and rest before going back out and picking up their normal uh, their normal activities. So life, you know, can create these pauses for us sometimes. They're times of stopping. And sometimes, you know, there's an accident that happens and you're or you're injured in some way and you have to stop or John had his surgery not long too long ago, so he's had to stop. Or maybe some of you have been laid off or furloughed, and so there's a way in which life has put the stopping right in front of you. Or sometimes somebody dies and everything kind of comes to a halt while you regroup and figure out how to be in your life. And we're forced to stop at such times and to take time to heal. And often certainly has been true for me, we struggle against that kind of pause. We don't want it. This is bad. You know, how come I'm not healthy? How come I can't do what I always do? I want to do what I always do. And, and we hold it in that way. But when we begin to trust it, sometimes because it happens more than once, we begin to value that. Or maybe you begin to see, oh, here we are, at retreat one more time and I'm going to stop. But our Zen story, our monks in the Zen story, also point towards something else. And they point towards taking a different stance towards the activity that is in our lives and learning how to be not busy even when we're doing a lot. So this is really a learning about being in a place of presence in our lives. Such total presence that no matter how many things we are doing, we're doing it from a place of stillness. T.S. Eliot, remember, talks about the still point where the dance is. So part of what we're wanting to do here is to facilitate finding and learning and inhabiting that place of presence. How can you really practice finding being present, practice being here, as Gil so simply said last night, so that it happens more easily in your life? So there are three qualities that I sometimes think of when I think of practice that can be really, really helpful. Three. And these are not, this is a Mary Grace list. This is not a Buddha list. But I think he would like it. I think you could find it if you looked. So curiosity and confidence 
and contentment. So, curiosity. You know, curiosity is really wonderful. And I invite you to be really curious while you're here about anything, actually, that comes your way. Children are always curious, you know, what's this and what's that and why, 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 why? And my oldest grandson, I know a number of you have heard me say this, used to love to come roaring into the room and put his hands on his hips and he'd look around and say, what's going on here? And you know, that's a great question. What's going on here? What's going on here right now? Right now. What is this that... This, what is this thing that calls itself a bunch of people listening to something called a Dharma talk and some other one person giving this whatever this thing is that's a Dharma talk? What's going on here? Sometimes we say, why me? You know, why me? Sometimes curiosity is what brings us to practice. You know, what is this thing that your friend is doing that or you've read about it or maybe it even brought you to this retreat? What's a retreat about, you know? Why why would anybody want to do that? I mean, you've all, probably by now, most of you anyway, had the experience, people say, oh, you're going on a retreat, what are you going to do? And then you say, well, I'm going to be silent. And usually that's enough, you know. They go, what? You're not going to talk for ten days? And then if you start telling them about the schedule or anything like that, and people are really, really... How could that be? But some of those people, of course, then get kind of curious, and then they're the ones who show up the next time. And of course, as we live our lives out, we get older, sometimes there's also this little, almost desperate edge to our cure. Like, what? what? I'm not going to be here much longer. What is going on here? And I know, you know, the, the, everyone I know, I'm just about to be 68, everyone I know in my age group is very aware of the fact that we don't have lots more time left. Maybe, maybe 20, 25 years, 30 at the outside, but they probably won't all be good if we get that many. So, you know, we've been, and it's gone by really fast, let me tell you. It's amazing how fast it's gone by. What's going on? What is this thing that causes itself a human life? And it does sometimes see, I love this, particular saying that it seems like life is like getting on a cruise ship in order to sail around for a while and then sink. <laughs> so what? What's going on? What is it about? And Or maybe you're curious about, how come I'm never really happy? How come I'm never really happy? Or why do I go around in circles? Why am I doing the same thing, having the same relationships, being in the same job? over and over again. Why doesn't my life work? And so that curiosity brings us to practice and, and we begin. And so we begin. Bring your attention to this moment. Bring your attention to this moment, this breath, this body, and be curious. Seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, smelling, the mind itself. The instruction is to penetrate your experience with your awareness. What is this thing that we say is breathing? What is it? What is it to be human? The Buddha's instructions 
are for all for the investigation of your own heart and mind. Everything that the Buddha tells you to do is for you to take and investigate. How is this in my own heart and mind? What is the nature of my experience? Investigation is one of the ingredients of the enlightened mind. And our experience, the Buddha tells us, is to be attended to, is to be noticed, not to be identified with. So one of the things that has um, emerged for me over the years is to give my attention to the breath and to the body as though I've never had one before. Imagine, if you will, you're a space alien. You usually look something like a jellyfish and you certainly don't do anything like breathing and here you are in a human body. What would, it be, what would that be like if you were sitting here in a human body for the first time and breathing? What is this breathing stuff? What is this body? And when we really get interested and curious and investigative in that way, then we begin to see that the emphasis on me in a lot of this is not so very useful. It's not so helpful to, to see, to hold it all as me and mine. And what becomes much more interesting are the conditions that give rise to any particular experience. And we begin to notice that when we attend to our experience in this way, one of the things that is true is we often suffer less. Isn't that interesting? You're getting quite curious and interested in the weird sensation in the muscles of your left shoulder and you could be aversive and reactive and hate it but sometimes when you really get interested the suffering, it's not that the pain goes away, but the suffering is less. Very important to begin to see that when we meet our experience with kindness and curiosity and friendliness and not with judgment then there isn't so much suffering. So as we suffer less and our curiosity really and investigation really begins to carry us, then we also develop some confidence in our practice. Now confidence is something that every one of you already has. You do have confidence in your practice. You would not sign up for a 10-day retreat if you did not have some confidence in your practice. You do. And, and if you have lost it today, I'm telling you, you've got it. And it's there. And, you know, it may have been originally inspired by the practice of others or perhaps teachings that you read. Um, and to have confidence is not egocentric or inflated. You know, we have confidence in a car that performs well. You know, your car is reliable. You know it will get you from here to there. You have confidence in a trail that you're familiar with. You know, you know that it's possible to hike on this trail and it's not too difficult. And if you follow the steps up, you know, you will in fact get to the showers and there won't be anything too difficult along the way. Or you may have confidence in a 
trusted guide, you know, someone who is informative and who doesn't get you lost. There's a lovely place in the, one of the Buddhist chants that talks about the Buddha as our guide. You know, he's, he's given us teachings that guide us on the way. And in fact, as you practice, you begin to have more and more confidence in the Buddha and the Dharma and the Sangha. And what you may also begin to have confidence in is sitting itself. And we begin to realize that sitting itself is an enlightened act. Sitting itself is an act of enlightenment. That the place of safety is the place of attention. The place of safety is the place of attention. So unlike our sea turtle friends, our tide pool is quite portable. You know, we can always have that place of attention. So when we meditate, we step into this place of attention. And we don't know We don't know. It was recommended last night that you bring your beginner's mind to your experience, whatever it is, and to let yourself not know. Recently, as part of my spiritual practice, I go to the Astronomy Picture of the Day website. Some of you probably know it, and if you don't, I recommend it. And almost every day there is an amazing picture of some nebula or galaxy or star cluster or something of that sort. And then it tells you, oh, this nebula is only four million light years away and from between, you know, between that galaxy and this galaxy it's only, you know, another eight million light years and it's so far away. And you begin to see that the picture is so big. It is so big. And John last night talked about taking refuge in the big. I really appreciated when he brought that to us. That, that that's that place of when we come and we begin to give our attention to our experience and we begin to realize, I don't know what's going on. And when you think about what it is to be human in that world of nebula and galaxies and all of that, we are so infinitesimal What is this? What is this that's going on here? And when we have moments here at the retreat of not knowing, you know, you might be sitting and there may be, it may even feel like confusion sometimes. What's going on? I don't know what's going on. I really invite you to relax into not knowing. Just let yourself not know. Find out. As our friend Ajahn Sumedho would say, just not knowing is like this. And just don't know for a while. Because it's a very good way to begin to open up into this bigness. And you may find that you can really rest in this place of mystery and not knowing. And that, in fact, it's much easier not to know. It's much easier not to know. Obviously, there's 
the normal kinds of knowing, you know, who you are and where you live. That's handy. It's a good idea. But in the big picture, this not knowing place is very, very interesting. And you can begin to have some confidence and resting in this not knowing place. So, as all of this happens, the curiosity, the, the, the confidence, and then we begin to rest in this not knowing, and then contentment can begin to arise. And contentment really allows us to be present with anything that happens, just the way it is. To be contented is to really to be friendly with our own experience, to meet it. Remember we talked in the metta practice earlier this afternoon about being friendly with ourselves and each other. And this to be friendly with your own experience, to allow it to be whatever it is. That sounds so easy, and it's not. We get so caught in wanting our experience to be other than what it is. And so we can also begin to practice it. Can you be contented with the retreat that you have? The retreat you're getting may already not be the one that you ordered up. You know, you may be ordered up something else. And it's not heading in that direction. And if that's not true tonight, it's almost certainly true by tomorrow night. <coughs> we don't usually get the retreats we ordered up. But we can be contented with the retreat that we've got. And as we begin to really let go of things having to be a certain way, that's that place where, you know, the the wanting it to be my way and wanting it to be all about me and I being the center of the world begins to soften and not be so strong. And and we can relax into the shifting, changing world that is the way it is. So that's that place where the Galway Canal poem that I quoted to you last night, remember the one that says, whatever what is is, is what I want. Only that, but that. That's a poem of true contentment. Whatever what is is, is what I want. Can you imagine? What a wonderful thing. So every evening at sunset, the Honu, the sea turtles, following some deep inner instinctual leaning, come home to rest in the safety of their pool, their various pools on the Hawaiian beach. And so we, by bringing really careful attention to our own experience and our own situation, can find our own resting place that is not busy, that is not busy, that is totally present and not caught in busyness or in not busyness. And we can bring curiosity and confidence into our time here. And then, you know, as we learn that place, then when the day comes, ten days from now, when you return, as the sea turtles return to the busier ocean of your life, then we have that, we have some deep sense in our being of the rhythm of safety and rest and presence and contentment and the refuge that is the refuge of seeing clearly.
So I'd like to end with a poem. This is a poem by Francisco Albanez, and it's called The One Who Is at Home. The One Who Is Here. We tend to go looking elsewhere. He says, Each day I long so much to see the true teacher. And each time at dusk, when I open the cabin door and empty the teapot, I think I know where he is, west of us in the forest. But perhaps I am the one who is out in the night, the forest sand wet under my feet, moonlight shining on the sides of the birch trees, the sea far off gleaming. And he is the one who is at home. He sits in my chair calmly. He reads and prays all night. He loves to feel his own body around him. He does not leave his house. So let's just breathe together for a moment. Just sit the way you are. You don't have to move. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.